I've always been afraid that I was going to tap the world on the shoulder for 20 years. And when it finally turned around, I was going to forget what I had to say. So spoke the subject of this episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. Welcome to another tale from the other side. Tom Waits was born into a middle-class Californian family in 1949. But enamoured of the Bohemian lifestyle depicted in beat literature, he went on to live in his car and in seedy Los Angeles hotels as he embarked upon his musical career. His distinctive raspy vocals delivered in a growl evoked the late night atmosphere of the smoky clubs in which he first performed in the late 60s. Drawing on jazz and blues, pop and avant-garde rock, he combines offbeat orchestration with his piano and guitar playing and stream of consciousness lyrics that reflected the influence of writers Jack Kerouac and Charles Bukowski. He's gone on to have an extraordinary career as an actor as well as a musician. And we're going to hear about that today. But just before we do, I'd like to invite you to join us at thebureauoflostculture.com. Sign up so we can send you newsletters full of wonderful countercultural curiosities. I wanted to say a particular thanks to Alex and Fran and Josh this month for their support. We really appreciate it. We appreciate yours if you want to come and give it. I also want to do a bit of self-puffery. Yes, me. Today's sponsor is me. Um, I've got a book coming out at the end of this year, well in November actually. It's called Bone Music. It's a study of the secret history of the Soviet underground music cut onto X-ray records during the Cold War era. It's my second book on the subject, but it's a wonderful thing, not just because of what I've done, because of the beautiful images that are within. Photography by Paul Hartfield, amazing design by Tiana, and it's published by Strange Attractor Press. Check it out and the project X-Ray, that's x-rayaudio.com. Okay, so back to today and our subject, Tom Waits. Filmmaker and writer Alex Harvey's new book, Song Noir, provides an account of Waits' wild years in the 60s and 70s in a Los Angeles that no longer exists. He mined a rich seam of the city's low-life locations and characters, letting the place feed his dark imagination, mixing the domestic with the mythic, turning autobiographical details into something more disturbing, a vision of Los Angeles as the warped, narcotic heart of his nocturnal explorations. And I'm very glad that Alex is here with me in Soho to elaborate on all that. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Alex Harvey, hello, Alex. Hello, Stephen. Thank you very much for inviting me on your show. No, a pleasure. And listen, a terrific book, Song Noir. We're going to talk about Tom Waits. But before we do, let's talk about Alex Harvey. Why don't you tell us who who he is? Well, I've lived in Los Angeles uh, for the last 14 years. 2008, I moved to L.A. And as you can tell, obviously, from the accent... I'm not from Southern California. I was a British uh, filmmaker, still am a filmmaker, decided to move to the States. And while I was living in Los Angeles, I understood or started to understand, I suppose, the work of Tom Waits a lot more. He'd been a passion for, for many years. I was writing uh, essays for London Review of Books or Los Angeles Review of Books on 
various kind of literary authors and filmmakers. And then it struck me that to look at weights through the prism of the city I was living in was a really interesting way of uh, tackling him because there are so many references uh, in his work. It was this astonishing kind of uh, reservoir mm. for him of, of all sorts of different influences. I used to work, for example, for a, a show called The Late Show, an old BBC show on, on BBC Two, and I could make films about... Albert Camus' death or uh, Barbara Hepworth an abstract sculpture one one month or another month I could or later I could do something on the World Cup basically I like subjects to be really quite diverse and eclectic and and that's what you get with Waits why mm. I was really attracted to him as an author I mean he's astonishingly uh, broad in the range of his of his influences. So the book that I've I've written which is called Song Noir he wants himself described his songs as movies for the ear. And so it seemed to me an apt title that would gather up so many of those different strands. Of course movies an important word here as well isn't it because as well as a musician he's a very good actor. Right, and he's appeared in a certain kind of movie, and of course the, the the city which you know we're going to talk about, the city which kind of made him or you know made the early part of his career, of course, is Movie Town as well, isn't it? Yes, even even though in, even though in some ways he's the kind of flip side of the kind of of the Hollywood glitz and glamour, isn't he? He's the yes. sort of he represents the underbelly of that Very city in so. some way. I mean, he started really working in in films um, in the eighties. Really, um, it was Francis Ford Coppola who gave him his break in, in movies. He appeared in small films like The Outsiders, um, Rumblefish, and then later The Cotton Club. And what he'd done for, for Coppola was write a soundtrack to his um, critically claimed, although box office failure, uh, One from the Heart. In typical Waits fashion, uh, it was a huge break for him as a songwriter to do a whole Hollywood big soundtrack. He was a little grumpy about it because he felt he'd almost moved away from the kind of jazz lounge music that Coppola wanted him to create for that soundtrack. I mean, the soundtrack is excellent and I think it's probably the best thing about about the film in many ways. And then he really was, um, I think, brilliantly curated by his wife, um, mm. Kathleen Brennan, who he married and met on the set of uh, One from the Heart from the Coppola film. She was working as a, scre as a script editor. And she, I think, pushed him to work with figures like Jim Jarmusch, Terry Gilliam, Coen Brothers. I yeah. mean, he's worked with some really um, interesting uh, filmmakers and sort of auteurs in in his later years. I just remembered earlier, he was, he was in Dracula, wasn't he? With, the, with the Gary Oldman. <laughs> That's right, yeah. another, another couple of films. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There was a good piece written by Alex Petridis, the Guardian uh, music critic, which pointed out that his influence is everywhere and his influence extends, I wait, his influence extends to mm. filmmakers. If you look at the mm. Coen brothers mm. and their uh, love of slightly twisted or grotesque characters, I mean, they're quite Waitsian in a, in a way. I mean, yeah, it's almost as though Waitsian, a bit like Orwellian, could become a kind of adjective. Oh, I think it very much is, definitely. I, we sort of dived in and I, wa I want to back up the truck mm. a bit. The interest, One of the interesting things for me in terms of this show and counterculture is that certain artists, certain musicians, and not just musicians, certain writers and you know filmmakers as well, remain countercultural somehow, even if they're super successful. So, and of Absolutely. course, being countercultural yes. is not 
in opposition to being successful or you know making making yes. a lot of money even yes but there are certain musicians that for some reason uh, seem can remain countercultural I, I would think, say for instance Radiohead are a bit like that as, yes. a, as a massive yes. band but Tom Waits for me somehow more than anybody it's like he still to this day in his in his reclusivity even yes and his choice of the things that he's done he remains a sort of countercultural figure is that what you think absolutely i mean i end a uh, song noir by quoting a poem that he wrote after the death of captain beefheart where he talked about following not beefheart's path but in a way creating the quote was a strange home of your own and obviously the home that that waits creates is a very strange and bizarre one um Beefheart, uh, you know as you can see from the poem is, was a close friend and an interesting sort of parallel i think waits has always followed his own path what i do in song noir is show in the first decade of his creative life from closing time in 1973 right up to swordfish trombones in 1983, so the first full decade in which he creates nine very different and um, distinctive LA-produced albums. He's constantly trying to evolve as an artist. He was always um, swimming against the tide. Mm. When he started in, 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 80, in 73, he was signed uh, for Asylum. And um, David Geffen, who was very much associated, I'm sure you're aware, with the kind of Crosby, Stills and Nash, the, the sort of Joni Mitchells, the James Taylors, that kind of Laurel Canyon folk rock soft sound. This was anathema, really, to wait, even though he shared a he shared a label with him. He said, I might share a label, but I don't have to sit down and eat with these guys. <laughs> His L.A. is the L.A. of downtown, mm. uh, an immigrant L.A., which is you know hugely influenced by um, Hispanic or Latino culture. Wasted and wounded, oh, what the moon did, I'll see you tomorrow If Frank cannot borrow A couple of bucks from you To go Waltzing Matilda Waltzing Matilda You Become a waltzing
It's not the kind of people singing on the porch on houses up in the canyons pretending that they're, they're somewhere else. Nor is it the kind of cocaine fueled glitz and glamour of the, you know, behind the Hollywood sign. No, you know, not at all. It's the opposite, isn't it? Not at all. I mean, he, you know, he, he had a clear uh, love affair with drinking. Um, his father was an alcoholic, Frank, and there's a kind of love-hate relationship in the early years with alcohol, how it kind of fuels the imagination and also the character that he plays, the one of a, of a beat poet. But, but he's a beat poet in the mid-70s, mid and late 70s, years after uh, Kerouac, his great sort of literary influence, has, of course, died. Although Bukowski um, is still very much around. And, of the, course, there is, you know, between Tom Waits and Bukowski, they, they sort of feel like two branches of the same tree in some way. But before we actually get into that, it's just, mm-hmm. so we've already gone to the early 70s when he first started to record, but what was his biog to get to that point? You know, well, what was his background? Up, he grew up, uh, first of all, in Whittier, which is... Um, a kind of almost sort of Midwestern type, um, slightly anemic uh, suburb of, of Los Angeles. And then after his parents split up, he moved down to uh, near San Diego, Chula Vista. Uh, and he left school young, I mean, 15, 16, worked famously in a pizza restaurant, Napoleone's, uh, which was in a place called National City. Their sailors would come in and it was in a rough kind of stretch of uh, some tattoo parlors and brothels and so on. So he very much early on kind of absorbed uh, a taste, if you like, for the more lower side of the road in terms of the American experience. He then brought that and pushed that into uh, really the folk rhythms of Californian folk circuit. So he starts off as as a folk musician, but he's also, you know, hugely influenced by blues. He went, you know, deep, deep love of um, the great bluesmen who who were playing and you could you know, here at that time, rather than, you know, the hippie, mm. you know, the, when I'm talking here, the, you know, the late 60s in his sort of teenage or uh, years. So, so right from the start, when he's got the chance to start crafting his own sound, he's already moving to a sort of jazz blues idiom away from kind of folk. And that's the, the you mentioned his sort of countercultural qualities is, I would say he's a shapeshifter. The, what my book tries to kind of bring out is though the way in which he puts on this mask that of the jazz uh, boho poet piano that's been drinking as a kind of classic song which satirizes it and he's trying to break away from that but he does it so well people think that is Tom Waits and so the final break the real creative move if you like is the album Swordfish Trombone Mm. it comes right at the end of his decade in LA and he deliberately deconstructs himself it's I mean, like he, he, t- he tore it all up in some yes, way, didn't he? Yes, he does. Because he takes those, a hammer to himself. Those previous albums, which are very pretty, aren't they? They've got that cast of characters that you mentioned, the background of the kind of neon-lit diners and the strip clubs yes. and that, and then, you know, the hookers and the junkies. And they've got, they've got that there, yes. but it's in a kind of quite a beautiful way, isn't it? Well, it, it's sort of almost Damien Runyon-esque, mm. uh, if you like. It, they're, they're sort of small-time criminals, but mm. they're... There's sort of almost the sort of tart with the golden heart. Yeah, feel. it's romantic. There's a yes, romantic. There's a slight romanticism, yeah. I would agree, definitely, in his earlier work. But it becomes a lot darker by mm. the time already of Blue Valentine, mm. um, which is very much um, an album which is taking real stories mm. of young women 
who are being raped and, and murdered. Uh, he lives, of course, in this, um, really the sort of Chelsea Hotel of Los Angeles, the Tropicana Motel. And he tries to almost live the life that he is portraying in his mm. songs, which is a romantic notion, the idea that you close the gap between the artist and his material. So he's living next door to drug dealers on one side and, and uh, pimps and prostitutes on the other. And there are all sorts of, of, of incidents. So it's almost like he's living in a motel where... It's not a place of rest, it's a place of disquiet. It's a place where he can absorb the kind of material that he's going to write about. But, of course, it becomes a nightmare. People right. come for him in the middle of the night. Right. There are all sorts of incidents and so on. And eventually, he has to kind of move out and to keep hold of his sanity, I think. So, yeah, so he's like a method actor in some ways. And he's, he's like plunging himself into the actual, I'm going to live this. Yes. But, of course, living it itself is quite a dangerous oh, thing to do. Absolutely. I mean, he deliberately did this, I think. Uh, one of the interesting details I've, I've found was that when he would go on tour with his band, he would he would book the band into quite decent accommodation, <laughs> but he himself would would check into the the absolute dos houses, um, which maybe it saved him money, but it also exposed him to a range of experience, I, I suppose. And he he in those early years, I think, thought of touring. There's a fantastic book uh, which I think is a very important influence on him, the great book of photography by Robert Frank, just called The Americans. You know, I don't know if you know that where uh, he was very close to the beats. Robert Frank, and he toured the States for about 18 uh, months or more and put this astonishing collection of photographs which show the underbelly of American mm. life, really mm. in the first time in the in the 20th century, I think. And, and Waits' project, I think, in the late 70s uh, was very much that, those sort of vignettes that, and trying to find epiphanies in mm. the sort of banal and harsh economic realities. But the key is swordfish trombones because he realizes if you're going to sort of make songs about a prostitute or a, um, a lovelorn sailor and you're always sounding like Tom Waits, um, you need to break your own voice. You need to fracture your own persona. And that's no accident, of course, that his acting takes off just after or around uh, the time of Swordfish Trombones. Because Swordfish Trombones, for example, starts with this great track, Underground, which is the sound of a, of a mutant dwarfs hammering, you know? And it's almost uh, the sense of, of a kind of manifesto. It's so percussively heavy, he's, he's hammering. It's almost like the energies, the subterranean energies, and the different selves and, 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 and versions of weights are just desperate to get out. They're bubbling up underground.
Swordfish trombones. Feels to me like a bit like a Beefheart album, actually. I don't know whether he's all taken on Beefheart as a muse around about that time, too. Yes, very much so. I think Kathleen Brennan, who I mentioned, mm. his wife, introduced him uh, to a whole range of influences. Um, you know, Kurt Vile, mm. for e- e- example, I think. Um, and so expanded, I, I, I guess, his, his m- musical uh, encyclopedia, the sources that he was drawing. And Beefheart, I think, was an absolute common passion. And he develops a, a much more astonishing kind of range of sounds, you know, literally um, scraping chairs across a studio mm. floor, everything in a, in a way then for him becomes music or has the possibility to be music. He was very careful, certainly up to that point, and maybe always has been since, about the image as well. Now I'm thinking of like even the covers of, of, of albums like Blue Valentine and stuff, you know, with these absolutely beautiful, absolutely out of time photographs. They could have been taken in the 40s or 50s almost, you know, with, yes. with, with strippers in the background. And, and absolutely. It's, there was like set pieces of sort of Americana, no, noir com- Americana. Completely. And you could almost trace his evolution as an artist in some ways by some of the covers. So, for mm. example, uh, the cover of um, Heart of Saturday Night, he's a slightly kind of bashful uh, drawing and mm. there's a, a woman in a scarlet dress looking at him and he's looking down and it's it's uh, the, the streets are bathed in neon and mm. it's, it's slightly based on a, a Wee Small Hours, a Frank Sinatra album. So there's a little kind of retro homage there. But then it becomes a little bit darker in Small Change, uh, his, his fourth album, where he's photographed much more in a much more sort of uh, verite feel in a stripper's changing room with oh, a bored, it, dis- yeah. sort of disinterested mm. stripper in sort of pasties and a G-string in the, in the background. Yeah. It's like some sort of disheveled mm. latter-day sort mm. of private eye, Philip Marlowe. Mm. And the, but then there were even kind of quite coded uh, messages, I think, for example, in Heart Attack and, and Vine, which is a screeching, you know, much, much more electric. I mean, someone, I think it was Barney Hoskins, brilliantly described uh, the sound of Heart Attack and Vine as like howling wolf in Babylon. There's just howls of, of anger almost. And I think he was very much at the end of his tether when he was doing that. He'd, he'd kind of mm. exhausted himself or the city was exhausting him. And there are messages. So he's dressed as a, in it with a, it's, it's a, of a, a throwaway newspaper and there's a shot of him included in that wearing a kind of thin tie and scrawled on the top is the phone number of a real doctor who he was seeing or a psychiatrist at the time and there's a reference in in one of the songs to the man in the necktie who who, who hangs himself so I think the covers the covers are always signaling all kinds of messages I mean most famous one I guess is Blue Valentine uh, because of his relationship with Ricky Lee Jones. Real and step. he actually features not just Ricky Lee Jones, but Chucky Weiss, um, who... Subjects of the song Chucky's in Love. Exactly, and they form right. this, this triumvirate. Here is a sidebar about Tom Waits, Ricky Lee Jones, and Chuck E. Weiss, who died July 19th, 2021. It's from a piece that Ricky Lee Jones herself wrote in the Los Angeles Times. Chuck Weiss was Tom Waits' sidekick for so many years that when I met him, I couldn't tell him apart. It was as if he'd always been there. They were two of the most charismatic characters Hollywood had seen in decades. And without them, I think the entire street of Santa Monica Boulevard would have collapsed. 
They were hipsters long before the word was overrun by very unhipster types. Held it up like hitchhikers hoping for a ride out of their own skins. Or like that dilapidated Hollywood sign of 1978, trying to remind people there was still great music to learn from. Chuck was a digger of culture, and more than once brought up great nuggets of black music for Tom Waits to mine. Chuck and Tom shared Lucky Strike cigarettes. They leaned against the wall the exact same way. And on one occasion, they even shared the same dame who, stumbling out of Waits' kitchen, ended up in Weiss's basement. Besides those girls, those little Waits actually shared. Chuck got the scraps and that's the truth. And don't get me wrong, he was not entitled to share Tom's ascension. Tom had carved his own place amongst the poets and passers-by. But there was a love there, something between them, a symbiotic relationship like the fish who cleans the shark. When I met them, and it was them I met, not him or him, Chuck was the wiser of the two. And given the chance, might have been the kinder. But he'd already found his way to barbiturates and fooled himself into thinking it was a better way to go than heroin. They were sort of three romantic rebels, I, I, I guess, um, very much aware or and sort of self-mythologizing at the same time. But a lot of that album, uh, Blue Valentine, um, is very much about uh, his relationship, I think, or, or it draws on elements of his relationship with Ricky Lee Jones. Now, in her background was heroin as well. I, don't, I mean, you mentioned earlier that he was much more of an alcoholic than a yes. than a junkie right yes. but of course junk and that seamy side of of LA p- plays a big part in his songs as well doesn't he and so for him i guess he was seeing that up close with her anyway. very much so i think that's what one of the the reasons uh, certainly it's mentioned by Ricky Lee Jones in her recent autobiography last chance texaco you know where once he finds out about the extent of her heroin habit, he initiates the kind of breakup, and then mm. she kind of retreats into a fairly sort of uh, drug-fueled uh, period in Chateau Marmont, out of which Pirates, mm. a second sort of breakup album, comes out of. Jackie Vice also, you know, struggled with um, drug addiction uh, for for many years. Kathleen Brennan. Uh, really saved him he says mm. uh quite often uh, on the record deus ex machina she comes in and pulls him away from that la life and and quite brutally they they sever bones Howe, for example the producer who had uh, produced seven of the nine albums that he recorded in in la he doesn't produce sawfish trombones he needs to kind of move on he needs to break those relationships herb cohen who'd been his manager is dispatched as well and they they move away from from that life um and she becomes i think a very important almost co Collaborator co-wrote many of his songs later on, didn't she? Indeed, and, I mean, and, and, and I think a brilliant lyricist actually yes, as well. You know, yes. uh, just going back to the LA of those first records, or the imaginary LA even for, mm. for Tom Waits, felt like it was out of time somewhat, like a kind of Raymond Carver sort of. And the Beats in Kerouac, there was a kind of retro thing as well, wasn't there? About you know traveling from the New York to the West Coast and back again in the back of these railway trucks with the hobos and the bohos. And there's a sort of romanticism about that, which he'd obviously bought into big time, isn't it? But how real was that in terms of what L.A. was like? You're absolutely right. I mean, he creates his own L.A., a mythic Mm. L.A., a kind of very much a sort of nocturnal 
nightscape, dreamscape, which is dark and disturbing and unsettling. But he's always including, you know, real quotidian details from his life. He composes a song called Depo Depo, uh, which is all about the Greyhound bus terminal and somebody waiting for a connection but of course it being Tom Waits he goes to a place where which for a date and the date doesn't show and he's in limbo so it's a place of connections where he makes no connection but he includes you know the detail of the TV coin operated chairs as though you kind of that was you know a good idea for a date you know let's go and watch a, uh, some television on a on a on a pay for TV chair a TV chair that's yes what you want to so I, I sort of started uh, investigating in this and um, sure enough of course there were TV chairs uh, thirty of them or so which people would like to kind of come and 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 take dates on so so you sat on a chair you put some money in like a vending machine yes. and you've got a certain amount of time watching tv before it run out <laughs> yes that, that it? it's a very it's a very it's a very tom waits kind of idea of a date in some ways yeah. um when also the greyhound bus station you know the, ro- the romance of the kind of small hours in the ex- Exactly, Dark exactly. Of the, but but yeah. also yes, you know it's it's um the it's, poor. it's a destination mm. which is no destination. Mm. It's a, a mm. trip that's going mm. nowhere. That's very much weights. I think that um, you know he deliberately sought out that LA, that but that LA was there to find. He yeah. talks, for example, uh, with great pleasure of the time that they drained Macarthur Park Lake. Uh, in the 1970s and they pulled out countless sort of skeletons and and, and rusted vintage cars which again is a very (laughs) sort of Waitsian moment Um, his mind obviously does kind of cleave to to the to the dark imaginary I mean one of the interesting things I suppose is how how almost split his work and his sensibility is you know, in, in, in a later album uh, or collection of songs, which is called Orphan, he calls them brawlers and bawlers. Mm. And there is always this very tender lyrical side. Uh, so the ballads are still there, mm. even on, um, a, on a heart attack and vine. There's Jersey Girl, which is uh, mm. then, you know, recorded later by, by, by Springsteen. But is, and, and his wife, Kathleen Brennan, uh, comes from from Jersey, so it's very much a heartfelt uh, ballad for for her. But there are always the brawlers, Mm. there are always the characters who are mired in self-deception and sometimes self-loathing. He doesn't spare them. It's funny you mentioned uh, that triple album, um, because it's got a You Can Never Hold Back Spring, which is probably one of my favourite all-time songs, Work of Wonder. I think this is one of the keys to his, um, his work. He's very literate. I mean, he mm. he read very widely uh, widely when young. So not just Jack Kerouac mm. and Charles Bukowski and the Beats, but um, a lot of else. Uh, you know, Flannery O'Connor, Damon mm. Runyon. I mentioned there's a writer Nelson Algren, uh, Chicago-based realist uh, novelist of the mid-century. He mm. soaked up a, a lot of literary references, but also film, mm. hugely influenced by uh, American film noir. Uh, Sam Fuller's work, Ray, uh, Nicholas Ray. Um, uh, there's a great anecdote that I think uh, one, uh, one of the drummers that he worked with uh, tells of the way in which he would get the crew uh, on tour to learn the script of Double Indemnity, like a song almost by heart. Um, so, you know, that, that, that world very mm. much enters mm. his songs. Mm. I think one of his greatest songs, for me anyway, 
is Burma Shave, which is a, a, a wonderful amalgam of a Nicholas Ray film, which has Farley Granger, a sort of baby-faced, uh, small-time hood on the run who picks up a young woman. So that's, that's moving through that song. But he also draws upon memories of traveling with his father through California. So Burma Shave is an is a, a advertising hoarding that as you travel up the freeway would send messages to you. But of course, it's a commodity, it's not a destination. Although the young Tom Waits in the back of his father's car would kind of see it like that. It's a Shangri-La and it, it, it acts in the song brilliantly as though they're heading for Burma, Burma Shave. No, no. I remember it rained all day the day that Elvis Presley died. And only a legend can make it do that. You know, I remember when my baby said we were through and she was going to walk out on me. With Elvis Presley that talked her out of it. He gave me my first leather jacket and taught me how to comb my hair just right in a filling station bathroom. And it was Elvis that gave you a rubber on prom night and told you that you looked real sharp. So, I think he maybe just got a little tired of repairing mention also characters in there and his father and mm. in terms of that trilogy of albums swordfish trombones rain dogs and uh, frank's wild, wild years, years yes there is this character frank and is is that character you, you talk about it is it yes. an alter ego of tom waits is it something to do with his father frank you know and and he became that for a while didn't he during those three Yes. I think it's it's all those and more. I think that, you know, he's, he once said there's a little bit of Frank in all of us, that d desire for escape. It starts in, in Swordfish Trombones with the track Frank's Wild Years, where Frank, who's um, a successful second-hand furniture salesman who lives in the valley, the San Fernando Valley, who has a... Uh, a wife who's described as, you know, a piece of trash and uh, has a dog, a chihuahua. And and then one night he comes back and he burns the house down and, and he describes that burning in the beautiful, bright, garish colours. And then he gets into his car and drives the 101, the freeway north out of Hollywood, away from that life. So it's a, it's, it's a dream of flight. It's a dream of escape. But in some ways, that's exactly what his father did to his family life. He he, he walked out on it. He he basically set you know set a match to the family unit. I mean, Waits once said, um, you know, listen, you know, give me a hundred dollars and I'll sit down and you can psychoanalyze me and so on. So he was quite mocking about mm. the idea that his songs should explore directly sort of psychological wounds that go back to childhood. So what he does, I think, very brilliantly and tangentially by creating the, the story of Frank, who becomes 
less and less successful as Tom becomes more and more successful. So there are two trajectories, and they're going in opposite directions. Frank makes Tom successful in some ways, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. I think it's a key song. This idea of setting fire to your life is what he also did to his first part of his career, to the LA years that my book is about. He sets fire to them. Um, and this is also a very kind of L.A. thing. It's it's in um, a famous novel like, for example, Day, Nathaniel West Day of the Locust, which features the original Homer Simpson, who's an artist who's painting a picture, which is just called The Burning of Los Angeles um, in, in, in homage to Goya and so on. And he knew, of course, Waits knows of West's uh, work. Joan Didion picks it up in her essays slouching towards Bethlehem, essays about Los Angeles in the late 60s. That was the most disturbing thing about the Watts riots that for for, for, for days you could see and the city is on fire. So this idea of fire, fire is cleansing, just burn it down, is very, very central to the, um, the LA imaginary. Every October you look up and there are fires in the, in the mountains in the north of, of Los Angeles. So all of those things come together, if you like, all of those influences and his own psychological need in, in Frank and Frank's act of deliberate creative arson. Well, Frank settled down out in the valley and he hung his wild years on a nail that he drove through his wife's forehead. He sold used office furniture out there on San Fernando Road. He assumed a $30,000 loan of 15 and a quarter percent, and he put a down payment on a little two-bedroom place. Well, his wife was a spent piece of used jet trash. She made good Bloody Marys. She kept her mouth shut most of the time. And they had a little chihuahua named Carlos that had some kind of a skin disease and was totally blind. Then, of course, he does what a lot of countercultural figures did maybe a bit earlier um, as Miles said to me you know worn out by too many late nights too many parties just too much stuff they, they retreat don't they? They go, first of all they go to New York and then they, then they retreat to to a sort of rural countercultural life don't they which is not the subject of, of, of the book but that, that's the kind of next thing for him isn't it is yeah. the, and they sort of leave LA they go to New York then they end up sort of upstate don't they, in North, North California, living a rural life and goes and becomes a family man. Yes. With Kathleen, she did save him. I mean, you know, you talk about that from alcoholism in a way from becoming a parody of himself. Absolutely. And, you know, became a kind of creative collaborator. He becomes a kind of extraordinary rural character as well. I remember an interview I read years ago, actually, and I think it was a British journalist who went to interview him, I guess, there's an album coming out or something. But he had to travel out to a oh, yeah. rural bit of North California and meet him in a diner. And they had a kind of what was described as a kind of classic Tom Waitsian interaction. The funny yes. part about yes. it was that, that the journalist says that when he was leaving, he saw Tom in the parking lot on a mobile phone. But uh, but I think his manager or something came over and sort of said, like, don't take a photograph or don't mention the mobile phone because he, he was, like yes. anybody, he's got his kids are at school and he's got to, he's got to pick up the groceries. He's got he's yes. got a mobile phone. He lives in the 20th, 20th century and stuff, but he still continued, didn't he, in a way to sort of, you know, at least publicly live the life I think of so. this character. I think so. I think that was definitely um, a huge part of the strength of, you know, 
his his later years that he had this family base and uh, and and Kathleen's uh, clearly brilliant editorial or creative eye to to collaborate with. But you know the early period he produces nine original mm. albums in in ten years. Uh, he hasn't produced nine original albums in that way. What's he What's he doing? Well, I, I think um, he's done a lot. His 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 acting, of course, has mm. really taken off. I think he's appeared in maybe up to seventy uh, mm. films. Uh, you know, recently, you know, you could see him actually in 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 a Coen Brothers films, uh, the Ballad of Buster Scraggs. Mm. He was in a Jarmusch film a, a, again recently. So he's always he's always uh, involved in in work. He doesn't like traveling, and apart from two thousand and four, I think he played one gig at the Hammersmith Apollo. Previously. Hadn't appeared in um, in the UK for seventeen years before that. Yeah, I think he's always preferred Ireland. I mean, he's got a bit of Irish heritage, hasn't he? And uh, and I think there was some incident where uh, Ronnie Scott's jazz club where he had a falling out. I mean, I, mean, I think he, he says, "I'm a grumpy man," which comes as no surprise when you kind of see his gruff uh, demeanour. I really hope that there's still more to come. The last track that I, I'm aware of that he released was a beautiful recording of Bella Ciao, which is an old Italian partisan song which he did with a guitarist Mark Rebo, who he'd collaborated a lot before. A song that was written about resistance to Mussolini's fascism, and of course he released it at the, the height of Trump's mad authoritarianism. So he's quite political, although he's in rural isolation, as you say, you're absolutely right. If you look at something like Bad As Me, his last um, album, 2014, there are songs there that very much, you know, Hell Breaks Loose, that are about engaging with America's wars in the Middle East. He's still engaged in the world, but clearly not engaged in the world in the way in which he was in the Tropicana Motel, where <laughs> at three o'clock in the morning, anyone could be knocking on his door. I think also it's quite difficult, isn't it, in the internet age to be a kind of Waitsian character somewhat because of the internet, you know, mm. and also the visibility of artists like, you know, you know, via YouTube, you know, we can, we continually see clips of artists in the dressing room and getting ready to go on stage and pulling their stage clothes on and, or, you know, at, at Walmart buying some, you know, it, it's, there's that kind of visibility and it's difficult, isn't it, to, yes. to be a kind of to Tom Waits in that kind of modern world in a way. I think that he didn't want to repeat himself. Mm. I mean, um, he was well aware um, that I think later Kerouac, for example, mm. descends into pastiche mm. yeah. and, and loses its quality as the alcoholism takes hold. Mm. It's very difficult for artists to um, move on and move beyond their early personas. Um, so it's astonishing the way mm. in which um, I think he's continued to develop. And the later, the later work has a kind of clarity and a simplicity at mm. times. You think of songs like, you know, Hold On. Uh, they are deliberately and successfully timeless, whereas a lot of the earlier L.A. stuff feels more of a period mm. and more kind of obviously rooted in a specific way of life and a specific urban context. You're absolutely right, Hold On, and You Can Never Turn But Spring. They are timeless mm. songs, aren't they? And then that work I mentioned earlier with, you know, Alice um, for the musical theatre. It's a masterpiece. It's a lyrical it's masterpiece. It's a phenomenal writer. I mean, yeah. That's the, the point of my book, really, mm. just to kind of... Because, you know, I'm coming from mm. uh, being uh, somebody who writes a lot on literature, mm. is to really look at the quality of his mm. of his writing. And I would argue that, in many ways, he's a better writer than someone like Bukowski.
tricky. There's 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 less sloppiness. Uh, he doesn't overwrite like Kerouac uh, does at times. And the, the strength of, of course, of his writing is when you hear some of the cover versions of his songs. Um, just take you know Way Down in the Hole, where the the cover version of the Alabama Boys, which is absolutely superb and takes it away from weights but also gets at the heart of the song as well there was a recent album released uh by uh women artists women singing weights uh songs most of them a much younger generation in the you know in their uh, late 20s or 30s doing outstanding uh covers it's just you know clearly a mark of the caliber of his songwriting from a musical background of course the other thing which he which is quite extraordinary is that he brought about a change in music publishing the idea of passing off you probably know this story already but the um this is the story that my publisher told me which is that he's been very generous and allowed the use of his songs in many films but he neither of them him and Catherine uh, don't allow the songs to be used in adverts you know selling shampoo and crap you know yes, yes. but there was a fav- famous story about that a, a particular product i can't remember what the product was particular ad agency really wanted to use one of his songs and they tempt it in the ad and the director had cut it to a tom witt song you know and, and thinking that they could clear it you know and he came back and said no you mm. can't have it you know and they you know they offered him a huge amount of money and he said no you can't have it so what they did is they went and got hired a guy who sounded like tom Waits, yes yes indeed. who recorded a, this song which they put in the ad and then Tom Waits sued them and it was the first time that this uh, had happened whereby it became a copyright infringement not just to copy somebody's song but to copy them yes because the guy was imitating Tom Waits yes and it went to court and it Tom Waits probably would have lost apart from the fact that the guy who sang the piece was a Tom Waits fan (laughs) <laughs> and he stood up in court when he was actually asked to testify and said, they told me to sound like Tom Waits. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't coached well enough by his yeah, lawyers. lawyers. Or he broke down when actually facing, you know, the yes. fact that he had to actually betray his hero yes. in court. And he actually did. So that, that now is passed into law. It's up, difficult, I think, to off, really sound it? like Tom Waits. Because he does still sound like uh, nobody else, you know. A little um, bit of Louis Armstrong, maybe. Yes, Louis Armstrong called, crossed with Ethel Merman, somebody uh, <laughs> once uh, described him, which I think was a, uh, a description which pleased him. He, he's increasingly over the years added more kind of guttural moans mm. and groans and whines and so on, which um, almost like he's constantly providing his own percussive uh, vocal um, accompaniment. Uh, I mean, it, the voice... If you listen to those early albums on Closing Time, for example, the first album, listen to Old 55, and it's so youthful and Mm. so um, honeyed and light and lyrical. And you just think the years, the years and the damage done. (laughs) It's it's all there in the voice. Mm -hmm. Alex, we're getting to the end, um, but why don't you tell us what's after this book, Song Noir, what's next for you? Well, another passion of mine is um, Satyajit Ray, the great Indian film director. And so I've been working with some Indian producers in Calcutta. And so I'm making a feature documentary about the relationship of Calcutta to uh, Satyajit Ray, because it was a place where he was born and lived and worked all his life. So all of his films are completely imbued with Calcutta. And he, more than any other film director, I think, 
it's, it's, it has to be seen through that kind of lens. It's almost like Dickens and London, Calcutta and Ray. Um, and I'm shooting that in Calcutta in November, December. I love Calcutta. I don't know the best of India in the sense that it, it's a bit lost in time. It's not like Mumbai, which wants to be Dubai, and Delhi, which is dominated by politics and, and pollution. All the musicians and the... Um, the sort of Bengalis have the kind of intellectual or artistic uh, centre of India. The writers, the musicians, the, um, the the filmmakers, you know, come, you know, primarily come from, from Calcutta. Great. Well, maybe you can come back and talk about it. Thanks very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture to talk about Tom White's and about Song Noir, your book about Tom. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Stephen. I hugely enjoyed it. I wanted to finish with a little bit of the poem that you quote in the book, the memorial poem you wrote after the death of Beefheart. It's kind of a great message for all creatives, I think. Do not follow him, just take what clues he left and with them go and build a strange home of your own. Good luck with the book. Thank you. See you down the road. Thank you very much, Stephen. Thank you to Alex for stopping by Soho Radio for that conversation about one of my heroes. And you may know already about Tom Waits, so none of that was particularly news to you. But if you you don't, I hope it piqued your interest. And know him or not, check out Alex's book, Song Noir. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's terrific. Let us know what you think. Let us know what else piques your interest. We love to hear from people with ideas about who you'd like to hear about, who you'd like to hear from, countercultural themes, stories from the upside down. We'll be back next time, but in the meantime, do come and join us, bureauoflostculture.com. We have a newsletter which goes out most weeks with things about the shows that are upcoming, but also other stuff that's going on. We are trying to build a little countercultural community, and it will be terrific if you were part of it thanks to all those who are helping us already thanks to soho radio we're going to finish with one of our usual sponsors the real tuesday world this is a track of theirs from an upcoming album called junk shop melodies it's called the return of the flea <laughs>